Hey everybody, so I told you I'd keep you posted if Rob Morris from the Moore Freedom Foundation and I were going to sit down and do a live show. Well, it looked like my Mexican internet couldn't handle the YouTube live thing, and it couldn't, with video. So we were going to Skype each other, then independently film and record the audio from that conversation, then painstakingly put it all together, and then upload it. But right before we started, we decided to try YouTube Live with just the audio, and that worked fine, so we went ahead and did it. No worries if you missed the live show, though, because here it is as a podcast. I've tied it up the first 20 minutes or so to get you right into the action. And now, because I don't want to make this any longer than it already is, I'm Jonathan Coombs, he's Robert Morris, and this is Talk for Democracy? America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Uh, hello, uh, this is Robert Morris of the More Freedom Foundation, and this is our first foray into live programming. Delighted you're here. Uh, so today, I am lucky enough to be talking with John Coons, who is the creator of Safe for Democracy, one of my favorite podcasts. And uh, for those who may not know, uh, I run a YouTube channel called the More Freedom Foundation. And what it is is an attempt to set up a truly independent media organization. Uh, I, I joke that uh, I have a YouTube channel so I can be less irritating at parties. Uh, I don't need to... Uh, uh, buttonhole people and uh, uh, tell them what's wrong with the world because now I do it on a YouTube channel. I don't uh, think I've moved out of that phase of my life yet. No, you're not. You're not there yet. Well, that, that's no, I'm the, still that guy at parties. Well, that's the beauty of uh, being able to put this stuff out here is that uh, eventually uh, you, you're you're able to relax in social contexts and and let things slide when people say stuff you don't agree with. With my YouTube channel, I've covered a number of issues. Lately, I've been heavily focused on U.S. foreign policy. I lived in Istanbul for about five years and got to see a lot of aspects of the conflict in Syria. And that uh, led to me doing a, an extensive series on Syria that I think provides kind of a different view of the conflict than you'd get from, say, Fox News or The New York Times. And most recently, it has gotten me thinking very seriously about our relationship with Saudi Arabia, which is 
a much more dominant aspect of our policy in the region than I think most people recognize. I think it's uh, something that has been consciously downplayed. And uh, the longer I looked at the issue and the more closely I, I looked into it, the more that I read about it, the more I realized just how extraordinarily important the U.S.-Saudi relationship is in creating the problems of the region, contributing to uh, radical extremism and terrorist actions throughout the world. Perhaps I've gotten to the point where I overemphasize these things, but I think I've come at sort of a grand unifying theory of what's screwed up in the region. And at the heart of it is Saudi Arabia. I've uh, written an essay on this topic called Everybody's Lying About Islam that I would suggest uh, people pick up. Uh, I think it lays a lot of things out that aren't made clear elsewhere. Uh, what the essay also gets into is the prominence of Islamophobia uh, in the United States and Europe now, and how, as much as I abhor to, uh, that approach to these issues and feel that it's uh, uninformed, uh, inappropriate, and unfortunate, let's say, uh, I think that it comes from an understand kind of understandable place, because in truth, I think that the public in, US, in the U.S. and Europe has been lied to to a degree. Uh, the United States and also most European governments are very interested in hiding the relationship with Saudi Arabia and the impact of this relationship. And I think uh, after 15 years of supposedly fighting what, well, what I guess we don't call a war on terror anymore, people are, are weary and they're wondering, uh, so what, what is the deal with Islam? Well, what the essay does is lay out what that deal is. I think it lays out why Islam is nothing to be afraid of, but it also acts as sort of a call to be more aware of how U.S. and Saudi policy have affected Islam and the politics of Islamic countries over the past 50 years. Uh, it's not, it's not, the problem with Islam is not some 1,400-year-old issue baked into the DNA, the, the, the DNA of the religion. The amount of comments I've fielded over the past, uh, past couple of weeks talking about Muhammad and what Muhammad did and what Muhammad may or may not have wanted or this, that, or the other thing and what it says in the Quran, I, that, that sort of thing is immaterial. What is important is what has been done with this particular old religious book over the past half century. And you can't look at that honestly without looking at the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Yeah. And so obviously my podcast is trying to deal with these unknown sides of history. And what was really interesting the first time that you and I talked and going and watching a lot of your videos was that there's all these moments where the West kind of cocks up in the Middle East, right? We have the end of the First World War and the division of the region or the division of the Ottoman Empire into a bunch of little different nations. We have the Iranian Revolution in 1979. We have the Lebanese Civil War through the 70s and 80s, the Iran-Iraq War in the beginning of the 80s. And now we have this thing in Syria. And to a certain extent, the insurgency in Iraq when it happened. And what wasn't obvious to me before I started watching your stuff and what I don't think is obvious to almost anyone in the United States is that Saudi Arabia played a key role in every single one of those conflicts Absolutely. Uh, on our side in a certain sense, uh, but also hurting us in every single one of them. Yeah, and I, I think that the the relationship was easier to explain during the Cold War. Uh, one of the themes that I get into in my channel is just like how, I mean, yes, the world is screwed up and has issues that we should care about and look into resolving. But what I don't think people really recognize is just what a disaster the Cold War was for 
everybody else. It's it's easy for us to ignore from the U.S. context, where you know nothing too disastrous happened, or the Western European context, or even I guess to a degree, the Russian context. But uh, for the rest of the world, for the developing world, for for the majority of the continents, it was pretty rough. And in that context, the U.S.-Saudi relationship made a sort of sense. Uh, sure, the Saudis were pushing an ideology that is anti-modern, anti-enlightenment, what have you, but they were also very strongly anti-communist and that that fit with the U.S. agenda as defined at the time. I think we'd probably disagree on that to a degree. I, I, I tend to believe that the fight against communism was legitimate. I certainly don't endorse everything that was undertaken. Uh, your podcast on Guatemala has been kind of a bruising experience for me as well uh, yeah. excellently produced but man it's 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 rough to look at this some of this stuff in detail however i would enlightening and disheartening yeah enlightening and disheartening yes um but i would argue that at least the the instinct there was appropriate i do i do believe that the soviet union was an existential threat and in that context then working with saudi arabia made a kind of sense so just for the benefit of, of my folks who may or may not have heard all or any of your videos yet, could you give us like a super quick elevator pitch of like how the Saudis have been affecting U.S. foreign policy like since the end of the Second World War? Oh, well, I'll, I'll do what I can. And I think it's I think it's useful regardless. So Saudi Arabia is a very odd place. Uh, it is a absolute monarchy. But the way that the royal family has justified and continued this process in the modern era. Um, and it's also important to emphasize that Saudi Arabia did not really exist before the modern era. We're talking about a state that goes back to the 1920s in its, in its current form. The Saudi state is very interested in, in putting forward connections back to the dawn of Islam or what have you. But actually, uh, in the 20s, they dispossessed those guys, uh, the, the folks who had been in charge to some degree of Mecca and Medina for 700 years prior to the, uh, prior to the 20th century, were sort of kicked out by the Saudi Arabians. So at the root of Saudi Arabia is what I call the Saudi Balancing Act. You've got a royal family that's in charge that maintains this absolute monarchy, but they're only able to do that through a very tight and also very uh, unstable relationship with the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia. Kind of a Faustian bargain, except yeah. that the devil is God. Yes. Wow. Okay. That's, <laughs> that, I'd have to think through the ramifications of that statement, but very well put. So the, the religious establishment provides the legitimacy that the Saudi family needs to rule. And this ideology is strongly anti-Western. It's uh, not just anti-West, it's anti-most of what the modern practice of Islam is. It obviously and very publicly is anti-Shia. The Saudi state is a Sunni state, but it's also against most interpretations and most schools of Sunni thought and it is strongly against Western influence. So the problem for the Saudi kings since 1938, when oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia, is that they've gotten more and more involved and invested with the Western world. You've got Western engineers there. 
you've got tremendous amounts of money flowing into the country. So the way that the Saudi royal family has kept this relationship going is by pouring a ton of money towards that religious establishment with this particular ideology. So it's had tremendous effects on Saudi Arabia itself. It's a very, very odd state. I mean, it's got sort of, for some people, a first world level of development, but a society and an ideology that is very pre-modern. And that there's tensions with that internally as well. But what matters is how this plays out internationally. Uh, you have this Saudi royal family that actually got much more tenuous in its grip on power after 1979 when its relationship with the United States had to deepen even further uh, to confront radical Shia Iran, and then even further in the 90s to confront Saddam Hussein. So they've had to keep the religious establishment happy. They've had to pour all this money towards the religious establishment, not just in Saudi Arabia, but abroad. And I think what my essay highlights that isn't put forward as strongly really anywhere else is how incredibly large the impact of this Saudi money has been on most Islamic countries. Uh, if you look at any high-profile high event, any high-profile terrorist action in a Sunni country, or even in many serious insurgencies, there is a Saudi role that isn't appreciated and isn't paid attention to. The founder of Boko Haram uh, is uh, an example that I keep coming back to got his religious education and a lot of his ideas in Saudi Arabia. The leader of the group that destabilized Mali so seriously in the aftermath of the, I think it was sort of almost a direct knock-on effect to the uh, fall of Gaddafi's regime, but the leader in Mali also had incredible Saudi influence and funding. Uh, if you look at high-profile terrorist attacks, the San Bernardino attack in California was carried out by a woman who was raised in Saudi Arabia and had Saudi ideology at the root of what she was doing. I, I think the more that you look at this, the more kind of mind-blowing it is. And uh, I try to lay that out in the Everybody's Lying About Islam essay. And there's this interesting dynamic that you get at there where the Saudi monarchy, the kings and the princes, they want and they need U.S. support in terms of defense and technology, the stuff that they want to use to develop their small part of the country that they end up developing and yeah. to extract oil and the kit that they use to outfit their army. But the deeper the House of Saud gets in with the United States, the more it upsets both their conservative clergy and this huge population of rural Saudis who are also extremely conservative in a religious sense. And so in order to placate those two constituencies or two stakeholders, they pour oil money into the clergy and involve the clergy in the government of the kingdom. And they also allow uh, that population to make huge donations to organizations abroad, like the I can't the Fellowship for World Islam or the, the one that you keep mentioning in the essay, which yeah. end up funding directly organizations like Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and a lot of the opposition groups that are fighting against Assad in Syria right now. And it's not just the, the direct funding that, that matters. A lot of that has been cleared up after 9-11. Uh, uh, certainly before 9-11, you could, I mean, the links were so direct. You had uh, organizations like the Muslim World League or the International Islamic Relief Organization where, you know, branch offices would be run by members of 
Osama bin Laden's family or uh, al-Zawahiri's family. But those sorts of direct links have been cleared up to a degree. And actually, uh, there's an argument to be made that Saudi Arabia's role in Syria is not as malign as the role of, say, Qatar or Kuwait, uh, the official role, as far as what individual Saudis do, that that could very well be uh, incredibly malign. But it's not just the fact that the, the direct support for militants or terrorism, it's, it's also the support for the broader sort of extreme religion. Uh, there's a number of steps that people need to go through before they get convinced that killing someone for their religion is a good idea. Um, you know, you have to believe certain things about modern politics, about the, the primacy of the Quran, uh, this, that, and the other thing. And while Saudi Arabia has cut down on its funding for direct actions against the West or the Saudi state, they still, everywhere they put forward their ideology, support this sort of Sunni Muslim supremacist, for lack of a better word, uh, approach to politics in the world. So that, that, that last step into actually picking up a gun and killing people for your religion, they don't support as directly anymore, but every other step in the process is something that they're still pouring billions of dollars a year into internationally. Yeah, and this was something that was very interesting to me and something that I'm trying to hammer at at the episode of my show that I'm recording right now, that Islam, even within the two big brackets that we put out, Shia and Sunni, is, is not this monolithic entity. It's not it's not one religion. In the same way that Christianity is not one religion. You know, you have an incredible multitude of sects. Exactly. But what's, but what's happening in Islam right now is you have what's basically the Alabama snake handlers of Islam. That is this extremely <laughs> conservative, yeah. uh, a little bit nutty, or a lot of bit nutty, group of Muslims uh, named uh, Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia. But unlike the Alabama snake handlers, they have hundreds of billions of dollars of oil money to send out missionaries and found new mosques to spread yeah. that exact version of intolerant Islam. Exactly. So, an, analogy, an analogy that I initially used in the essay that I was convinced to take out was it, it's it's as <laughs> if the, West, the Westboro Baptist Church found, you know, had had billions of dollars of oil money. I mean, the, 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 and the, the, the implicit or secret approval and help of the world hegemon in the United States. Exactly. It's it's an extraordinary situation. And I talk about how it's I'm angry, you know, as an American and uh, about the Saudi role in bringing about the attacks of 9-11 and international terrorism and all that. But that's not really the, the greatest crime that Saudi Arabia has committed. The greatest crime that Saudi Arabia committed is against Islam. I, I think it can be described as a form of cultural genocide, the, the smashing of any kind of diversity within the religion, or at least the attempt to. And that, I mean, that is... That is horrifying. I mean, a terrorist attack, I mean, terrible, bad stuff, yada, yada. But uh, what Saudi Arabia has been trying to accomplish is much more sweeping than that. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, it's, so it's interesting because you talk a lot of, in the essay about the Reformation as this kind of parallel with, with what's happening uh, right now in terms of the Saudis' influence on Islam. But what's interesting is that before the United States results in this massive proliferation of different Protestant sects, um, there aren't that many different mainline streams of Christianity. You know, you've got Catholicism, you've got the Eastern Orthodox Church, you've got the stuff that hangs out in Northern Africa, uh, and then you've got a few really big strands of Protestantism in uh, the Anglican Church, the Lutherans and the Calvinists, right? Yeah. 
Well, and but, then it goes far beyond that and continues to develop as it goes well, on. Yeah, but once once you bring the United States into the picture, you have this huge proliferation of different Protestant sects. But Islam, almost from the very beginning, and I, I want to be really upfront, I am not an Islamic scholar. I do not know enough to really <laughs> expound on any of this stuff. But Islam, almost since the very beginning, has been bifurcating into little localized, very traditionalized, different uh, sects of the religion. And there's never been a kind of consolidation before right now. No one's ever mm. tried to stamp all those little sects out before right now, mm. or at least in as comprehensive a way as the Saudis are trying to do uh, with their worldwide dissemination of Wahhabism. Well, I think what's at the root of this, both in the Christian context and in the and in the, the Islamic context, is development. And I, I emphasize that in a couple of videos. It, it's it's the level of economic development that is attained. Uh, I think one I just uh, quickly just not 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 necessarily disagree, but but sort of qualify one of the things that you said is that yeah, yes, yeah. The, the Catholic Church uh, did have a somewhat certainly had a somewhat monolithic form of power. But when we're talking about the Catholic Church's time of dominance, it was always sort of managed to a degree it, it's you can you can walk into churches in italy uh, sort of medieval churches in italy and it is shocking the stuff that will be uh, in the churches that have survived the stuff that will be drawn on the walls i think it's the there was a cathedral and i think siena that that really jumped out at me uh, sort of looking at the, the sort of marble inlays on the floors and i was like who, who is this i think it was uh, there was a big picture of um, I'm going to massacre this, but I believe it's Hermes Trismegistus or something like that. Uh -huh. Is a weird sort of quasi-pagan uh, magical figure or something like that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But actually, before the Reformation, I think the Catholic Church made a lot, made many more allowances for different oddities or, or what have you. It was printing and economic development that, that allowed the idea of sort of a monolithic religion to really exist in the mm -hmm. first place. Mm -hmm. And every power in Europe in the pre-modern era had a version of religion that they were pushing sort of fanatically. You had a number of German states that were all in for Lutheranism. You had some, you had the Dutch, which were tremendously important, and they had a sort of Calvinist Reformed Church approach. Mm -hmm. uh, you had the Holy Roman Empire that was pushing Catholicism. I, I would argue that you would actually consider the Ottoman Empire as an incredibly important European state in the pre-modern era, and they were pushing Sunni Islam. So you had this competition. Yeah. So diversity was allowed to survive, and then it sort of got hardened to a point where, where we got we got to where we are today, where it, it became impossible to imagine one form of Christianity stamping out all the others. And yeah. So we, sort of, we gave up and got a little more tolerant. In Islam, the problem is that 50 years ago, with some exceptions, you had a generally fairly low level of development, and you had differing approaches to Islam, sometimes incorporating saints, sometimes incorporating older animist elements, uh, just this incredible richness and diversity. And then you had one country develop very quickly, uh, which is Saudi Arabia. If, if, we, if we'd had a number of different countries developing quickly, then, then we wouldn't have the issue that we have today, which is one country for 50 years pouring billions of dollars into, into its particular version of Islam. I think, you know, say, Back in the 1500s, if you know John Calvin had found that mountain of silver and was able to pour it into putting Calvinism across 
Europe, then I think you'd have had a similar situation. But that's not how Christianity developed. And it is how, to a degree, the way that Islam is developing today. And that's a real problem. And so so two things I want to point out here, one for the audience, which is that uh, we keep saying billions of dollars. And, you know, today, because so many numbers are so big, billions of dollars sounds like whatever. But this is a lot of money. And when you think about the countries that uh, Saudi Arabia is pouring this money into, like Malaysia or Indonesia, especially into less developed rural areas, a billion dollars buys a lot of mosques. It puts a yeah. lot of kids through very conservative Wahhabist universities. This is a ton of money. A ton of money. And it, it has a large effect within Europe and the United States. Uh, I think mostly because developed country governments sort of aren't really paying attention to a degree. Uh, and it has a, a large effect, a smaller effect in the U.S. But yes, the effect that it has on a less developed country is massive. It's, 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 uh, it's extraordinary. I think I compared it to, what is it? Uh, so if you're a local leader of Islam, you're going to have... Uh, you're going to have trouble disputing Islamic tenets with a with a guy who comes from a country um, comes from a country that has Mecca and Medina and also flew to meet you on a jet and you showed up on a donkey. You know, I, there's 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 it's very hard to compete with that. And you may you again not not an expert this guy, but uh, you you may have received a few years of training in Madrasa. You may have even received ten years of training in Madrasa. But this guy who's coming has spent twenty years learning. Uh, what would you call it? Rank whatever. Learning extremely thoroughly his particular intolerant version of Wahhabism in uh, a university in Riyadh, uh, and he's going to blow you out of the water, man. And he's also got uh, a number of scholarships for everyone in your village to, to come to um, a university in Saudi Arabia to learn his approach. It's it's uh, it, it's not an even it is not an even fight. Yeah. And there's uh, not that this is really necessarily relevant to the conversation, but there was this thing that the Jesuits did uh, during the Catholic Counter-Reformation after the Protestant Reformation, where when you were moving into kind of new territories, like way out, way out in the sticks in Russia, the Jesuits would come with a ton of money and they'd set up schools and they'd educate all of the children of the nobility and they would just in a day convert, well, you know, in 10 years, convert all these countries into hardline Catholicism because they had the cash to do it. Whereas, yeah. uh, you know, the Lutherans didn't have the money to send people out there. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's, uh, money, money is a very important factor in religious development everywhere. And I think it, I think it can be difficult for people to recognize that because it's, oh, it's this, it's on the spiritual plane. It's this elevated uh, thing, but it, it's always about money. And I, I think that's what I try to play out in my discussions of Christianity and Islam uh, in the essay. Yeah. And so, so one thing I don't think we talk, so Rob and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago uh, that at the end of which we wish we had recorded because we talked about a lot of really cool stuff. But what, one of the things we didn't get deep into in that conversation was I, so in the Iran that I'm talking about right now, which is after the coup, but during the reign of the Shah and before the Islamic revolution in 1979, there are several different, extremely popular strains of Shia kind of theology going around in the country. And the one that eventually wins out after 79 is Ayatollah Rula Khomeini's uh, jurist's guardianship, where it's, where it's basically a hardline theocracy. But there was this other strain that grew up in the 60s that was almost exactly parallel to liberation theology, which was, uh, my viewers know this, or my listeners, was this sort of pseudo-socialist Catholic movement 
uh, in Latin America that grew up in the 60s, where they highlighted the Bible and Catholicism's, it's called a prefer- preferential option for the poor. But a- anyway, the, the, the simplest theological basis for these sort of Islamic socialists in Iran was that God created the world and didn't want to divide it into classes of haves and have-nots, right? That's their basic theological grounding. Uh, and what happens after they unseat the Shah in 1979 is that there's this kind of, nobody's 100% in power yet. And there's a lot of these much more liberal people in the revolutionary government. They're running some of the stuff and Khomeini's people are running some of the stuff. But then a war happens, a war that people in the United States many times have never heard of uh, and almost always don't know anything about, even if they have heard of it. And that was the Iran-Iraq war. And so what ends up happening in Iran is the only guys that are strong enough to take over the government and prosecute this war are Khomeini's guys. No. Um, but who, who, Rob, who, Rob, tell us who is helping to fund this war on the Iraqi side? <laughs> well, it's Saudi Arabia. I think the Iran-Iraq war is a tremendously important uh, thing to learn about and, and emphasize. It, it's something, It's at least in the West, it's more or less forgotten. In Iran and Iraq, it most certainly is not. Uh, but it was it was sort of a World War One style conflict going on for most of the 80s. I think that also plays into what I was saying about the Cold War earlier, is that people just don't recognize uh, how terrible the effects of this were for most of the world. Uh, we, we've got Syria now, and it's terrible, and we need to figure out how to solve that. But in the 1980s and the 60s and the 70s, we'd have had 10 Syrias going on at any given time. And the Iran-Iraq war is one of the worst examples of that. I believe it's estimated to have killed around a million people. And it created the issues that that have dominated the U.S. approach to the Middle East for the past 20 years. As you had mentioned, which you're much better on than I am, the sort of fluid nature of the Islamic revolution. You had obviously Khomeini was powerful and he had a religious agenda, but there were many, many other players who envisioned something very different. But if you're, if you want to solidify an extreme religion, uh, a war is exactly what you need. Uh, And that's exactly what Khomeini got because United States and Saudi Arabia got together with Saddam Hussein of Iraq to give them exactly that war. Uh, I think that's something that isn't emphasized enough, is the degree to which Saddam Hussein is a U.S.-Saudi creation. As far as direct U.S. support for Saddam Hussein during the Iraq war, it's, it's actually quite small. I think something along the lines of $150 million worth of helicopters. But the intelligence... Also, just, just to uh, add on to that briefly, uh, we also sold him a lot of chemical weapons. So it well, was a that. lot like World War One in the sense of attrition, in the sense that there was trench warfare, and there was also nerve gas. There's a there's a lot there's a lot uh, going on. Can you do uh, so? We've got a comment here. Can you do a quick, just a quick three or four sentence introduction of yourself again? We we've been asked by one of the newer. Sure, newer sweet. I'm just happy we got a comment. Um, sure. So my name is John Coombs. Uh, I run a podcast from Mexico called uh, Safe for Democracy, and in the course of that podcast, we do really long shows in which we look at the dark shameful side of U.S. foreign policy. So in our first series, we started with the coup in Guatemala against the democratically elected Jacobo Arbenz that the United States carried out, the CIA, on behalf of the United Fruit Company. And then we looked at the aftermath of that coup, which was basically civil war and genocide leading to the deaths of 200,000 people uh, up to the modern day. And so our second... And we have a series right now about Iran, which is pretty much... pretty. It's not funny, but it's pretty much the same thing is going to happen. 
the uh, uh, and Quentin says thanks from Switzerland for the uh, for the introduction. The completely forgot what I was about to say. I think we should deal with another one of Quentin's questions, which I think actually speaks to a lot of what we were talking about. And mm -hmm. Quentin says, you don't seem to take into consideration the political dimension of Islam, which really is inaccurate to compare with Christianism. Don't you consider the ideological agenda of this religion? Um, I think that's an interesting question, and I think that that's uh, an approach that a lot of people take to this question. But from my... Uh, more extensive studies of uh, the development of Christianity and uh, my recently uh, larger uh, studies of the development of Islam, I, I've come to look at these texts, at the ideologies, as kind of blank slates. And while you can certainly say that there's no coherent political agenda of Christianity today, that's a very recent development. These, these texts, both the Quran and the Bible uh, have been used in very different ways. I mean, they're 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 weirdly weirdly neutral. Um, I think that the Quran is a little more consistent in that it's at least nominally uh, the result of one author, but it's an author who was writing 1,400 years ago. I mean, you can't emphasize just how different the uh, the context was, and I, I think that some of the fundamental oddness of Saudi Arabia stems from that because they're trying to do something that's impossible. They're trying to uh, run with a 1,400-year-old 14, text. And th to the extent that, that Islam, I just don't, I don't believe that Islam has any set political ideology. I do believe that Saudi Arabia is trying to put that together. Um, and I think the, their influence with massive support from the United States is what is creating a negative agenda or a, or a dominating agenda for Islam to the extent that it exists. But it's something that I've, I've been wanting to fight against very strongly is the idea that there is something fundamentally wrong. It's not, it's not these old books. It's what you choose to do with them. Yeah, and there's there's a, there's an interesting thing here where people who say that uh, Christianity is fundamentally different from Islam because it's not a religion of war or not a religion whose texts encourage war. Well, mm -hmm. it, one, read the Bible, and the first that's just that's just totally bunk. Uh, Jesus said, "I came with a sword." But um, the other thing that they conveniently forget is that from zero A.D. to eighteen hundred or even nineteen eighteen or so, uh, Christianity was almost exclusively evolved in uh, prosecuting wars against other religions or pogroms against other religions. And people conveniently forget that from uh, the high watermark of the Ottoman Empire, which you could maybe even argue wasn't really expanding in an uh, Islamic sense, but just in a traditional imperial sense, but at least from the high watermark of the Ottoman Empire in 1452, up until 1950, there's none of this Islam going to war with the rest of the world stuff going on, right? This is well, an extremely yeah. recent phenomenon. Well, no, there's always, I mean, there's always aspects of that, just as there are always aspects of that in Christianity. I mean, you could make an argument there was uh, in Sudan, I don't know, there was sort of a great Mahdi army, I believe it was, that, that mm. definitely uh -huh. Islamic jihadist mentality caused a lot of problems for the British Empire. But the, but it was also an anti-colonial struggle led by the yeah, Mahdi. Of course, of course. Yeah. And the, the, the one other thing I want to stick in here is... Um, Again, we're, we're always trying to compare or, or people like Bill Maher are trying to read this fundamentally violent aspect into Islam as if it weren't present in every other religion. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that you said Christianity has no political agenda today. And in general, that's true, I think. Except, well, I that, mean, the pope, except that the pope is becoming socialist, which is pretty awesome. 
Um, but if you look at conservative fundamentalist Christians in the United States, uh, there are certain aspects of their political participation, like the way that they're uh, in large part anti-Semitic, but uh, they have uh, unquestioning support for Israel because they're trying to usher in uh, the Battle of Armageddon in the Middle East. I mean, fundamentalist evangelical Christians in the United States are, to a certain extent, trying to foment war abroad. I mean, sure, but I, I, but I don't think that that I don't think that has real influence in uh, in the that's, whole. That's a huge part of the Israel lobby. You look at the people who support uh, oh, what's what the hell is it called? J Street's the J Street's the liberal uh, Israel lobby. The other one you're, anyway, talking, they, you're talking about IPAC, I think. Yeah, they they receive a huge APAC. Yeah, they receive a huge amount of their cash from Christian evangelicals. Like the majority of APAC cash no longer comes from Jewish people or from Israelis. It comes from Christian really? evangelicals in the United States. Yeah, that's totally true, man. That's it's nuts. That's extraordinary. That's and extraordinary. The, and the insaneness of it is the point. Yeah, Wahhabism is exactly like those nutball evangelicals that want to usher in the apocalypse by getting the Israelis to rebuild the Temple of David. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm a hundred percent on board with that. But 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 there is one thing <laughs> to bring uh, to bring up specifically related to the history of imperialism. So there's this this idea that Islam is so uh, fundamentally different and expansionist and yada yada yada. Well, it, actually, you don't need to go back to the era of the Reformation to see this in Christianity. Uh, we we have this weird way of looking at the British Empire and whatnot. We, we sort of secularize it. I mean, yes, it was about power and money and whatnot. But uh, when the European nations got together to carve up Africa towards the end of the 1800s, all of them had a missionary justification. All of them were talking about bringing Christianity to the heathen. I mean, that's that was their plan. Uh, that was the goal. That was certainly, at least in the propaganda, how they legitimated it. I mean, there is a very interesting tension in European imperialist history where you had, I mean, going all the way back to, oh, I'm probably mad, Bartolome de las Casas, uh, uh -huh. supposedly uh, spoke up for the native populations. I think he spoke up for the native populations. One of the ways he did that was by suggesting that- This, uh, this, was, a, this was, by the way, a, a Dominican- Pretty sure Dominican. He might have been Franciscan, but I'm pretty sure he's a Dominican friar who went with the Spanish conquistadors and uh, recorded uh, kind of the atrocities that were going on. That's who Rob's talking about right now. The the one uh, the one interesting thing about uh, Las Casas that I was reading recently is I, I believe his one of his suggestions uh, to to save the native people was to import African slaves. Uh, so uh, not, not exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. That went well. Um, the I, I don't so there's no uncritically positive uh, history in in your European history, but there always was a tension, and it's fascinating in in the Middle East the degree to which differing forms of Christian missionaries would would fight with the political powers that were trying to trying to serve other agendas uh, in in European empires. But that's uh, that's sort of a uh, that may be a, a bit too much of a digression. Yeah. Uh, one last thing before we try to remember where we were before we started on this. Something that you brought up in the essay, and that I've yeah, that I've that I've thought or I've known for a long time, is that even if you take wars that were at the time explicitly religious, like the Thirty Years' War, there is always an element of that war that probably would have happened uh, anyway with a different excuse if religion had not been part of the question. Which is to say that a lot of the violence that's happening you know, supposedly in the name of Islam right now is really political violence. 
mm-hmm. and it's only got this religious dressing. It's not it's not religious in origin. It's political. Yeah, the the, uh, the bit with uh, Molly uh, is kind of interesting. So Molly in gosh, I think it was 2012, 2013, uh, there were sort of radical Islamists that took over the country. I believe there was a French intervention to deal with it. Yep. Not, not not as up on the details as I should be, but, but what's fascinating is the guy who led, I believe it was Ansardine, um, which was one of the one of the players, one of the Islamist players, uh, had had a sort of religious awakening, uh, either in Saudi Arabia or through Saudi influence. But prior to that, he was a very conventional revolutionary figure, you know, sort of a, I think he, you know, he, he, he ran something that was a popular liberation front. Uh, I mean, th- there are fashions to insurgency, you know, uh, before 1989, most insurgent rebel groups that were searching for an ideology would come up with a left-wing or communist one. Now, certainly in, in Islamic countries, uh, they roll with a jihadist one because that's the, that's the, the, the attractive ideological toolbox that is presented. Yeah, there's yeah, a, there, I think it's well said. <laughs> there's, a, there's a question here that I think is worth looking at. Why is it that all cultures have a reduced birth rate except for Muslims who follow Islam? The, that's not... <laughs> well, I, I think it's not true, first of all. It, that is not true. Yeah. Um, what, <laughs> what's interesting, and I, I can speak to this directly from the Turkish context, Man. is that uh, yeah. Erdogan... Uh, one of the things that he's one of the I mean one of his weekly outrages that he uh, gets uh, rightly pilloried for is his shtick that all all Turkish women should be having three kids all Turkish women should be having three kids, which I think is an indication that Turkish birth rates have been falling and I think it's not a religious issue it's a development issue is what it is I believe that. Uh, it's been a while since I looked into the demographic stats in any detail, but my understanding is that outside of Africa, uh, birth rates are plummeting. Uh, so it's it's in African countries at lower levels of development where we're still getting uh, a demographic explosion, and it's it's falling away. It's falling away in Turkey. It's falling away in Iran. It's falling away. Uh, I don't have the, the Saudi stats at my fingertips, but... Once a country, and this is the same for all countries, once a country uh, reaches a certain level of development, children go from being your pension plan to uh, a luxury good. And that's happening in Muslim countries just as it is everywhere else. It is very interesting looking at the population graphs of, of Muslim countries going back about 50 years. And that, that, is, that is a story of incredible demographic growth, but it's tapering off right now. And if you're looking for a demographic explosion, the only place that we're really seeing it anymore are in the, the developing countries of Africa, both Muslim and Christian. Yeah. So I'm, I'm you know, because the Internet exists, I'm looking at a picture of countries by birth rate, right, of 2014. So a snapshot of the world, right? And what Rob's saying is 100% correct. Uh, birth rates track one-to-one with development because uh, as soon as you educate your female population, birth rates plummet. That's that's literally, that's it. That is the only thing that matters is you have to educate women and then birth rates plummet. Uh, mm-hmm. Unless you're China and you can literally tell people how many children to have. But yeah, I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia has the same birth rate as Mexico. Like it's not it's not an exclusively, it's, it's, not, a, it's not an Islam thing. That question, it's a bad question, Rob. 
Yeah, it's fine. Come on now. We welcome all questions here, and we welcome and we welcome them all all openly as long as they're not personally abusive to anybody who's currently speaking. Uh, the, Fair, the, enough. Fair enough. But I, I do think that Big Boss's comment uh, here is is actually. Though, though a little bit stronger than I would put it, I think is appropriate. He says, uh, rubbish. Birth rates have fallen dramatically in the Muslim world. Iran has a birth rate like any Western country now. Muslims are not immune to falling birth rates. Uh, to, get, to get sort of into your wheelhouse, I think that's going to uh, maybe get a little far off topic, but I, that's sort of a fascinating aspect of Mexico. Whereas in the, in the 1970s, uh, when we had the this sort of explosion of migration, I think the average... Mexican woman had something like six or seven kids. Now it's down around 1.9. Yeah. So some something. Yeah. This is this is when you said we we're going to get off topic. I was like, what? There's not even a topic. But yeah, Mexico is pretty far out of. But um, yeah. something that people don't realize is that uh, up until the mid to late 1990s, uh, the way that we were talking about Chile and Argentina and Brazil as being like part of the BRICS, Mexico mm -hmm. was the country that was developing Latin America. Right. Mexico was like the success story. But what happened, and the reason we think Mexico is really, really screwed up right now, is that a guy named Vicente Fox, who was the head of Mexico, or the president of Mexico, got together with George Bush to start a war against the cartels, right? Um, mm. That war was prosecuted to benefit the consciences of Americans, right? Because we didn't want to admit that it was our problem, that we were buying all these drugs. So instead of legalizing drugs or somehow dealing with that on our side of it, we started a war in Mexico, right? A war that's that, killed that 200,000 people. Did that start with Fox? I thought it was the guy before Nieto, whose name is sadly escaping me. I thought he was the guy who really Calderon stepped up. No, so what's no? It was it was it was Fox. No, everybody since Fox has has escalated, right? It's it hasn't died down since Fox stopped being president. But before then, Mexico was developing like everybody else, and now that that war is going on in the north, like Mexicans didn't suddenly move out of the cities back to the countryside and stop being educated, right? They're still pretty much a you know maybe first point one world country. Um, so yeah, Mexican birth rates are low, uh, and it's just this perception from the United States, this misguided perception that I think is you know the same way we have misguided perceptions of Muslim countries uh, that mm -hmm. leads us to believe that Mexico might still have this high birth rate where it really is not uh, that country. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it, it's uh, I'm tremendously optimistic about Mexico, um, but that but that that does perhaps get a little far off topic. Uh, yeah. So what 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 in the world were we talking about before we or if we have more questions we can do that too I mean that's working out fine I think we're I think we're we're uh, we're we're low on the questions here we've got uh, <laughs> got some I think we've got a uh, an extensive discussion on the question of Islamic birth rates I'm a big fan of Prophet one 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 he's he's a he's a good supporter and commenter uh, but I think his uh, his preferring of the idea of a high Muslim birth rate has been been pretty comprehensively uh, smashed. Debunked, think, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, one one thing that we were talking about before that question that I we've already kind of gone over this, but so uh, to say it for a third time, I am not an expert on Islam. I only know what I've learned in the course of this most recent series about Iran. Um, but one, <laughs> I, one I, of the I, sorry, I, go, like go, go. Point out, I, I don't I don't portray myself as an expert on Islam. I, I think what I have done is I have sort of inserted myself as a fairly well-read person into a discussion that nobody is having. There are, yeah. uh -huh. I mean, there are a lot of people who really don't like Islam and Muslims who can quote me Hadith, can run circles around me quoting Hadith and sayings of the Prophet and this, that, and the other thing. So as far as being an Islamic expert or an expert on these texts, I would never portray myself as such. But what I think I have done is, is notice something in sort of 
Middle East geopolitics and the politics of terrorism that people are desperately trying to ignore uh, in the halls of power, both in the U.S. and Europe. So uh, I, I would, I would, to the extent that I have expertise on this topic, I certainly know more about Islam than the than the uh, the average bear, uh, you know, <laughs> the average <laughs> employee of yeah, yeah. any any cable news channel, the average expert uh, brought on to any. Uh, cable news channel on the topic, but but I, I don't want to portray myself as a as a scholar of Islam. Yeah, and I mean I think the other thing to note is that uh, this is a conversation not being had uh, anywhere in the West, but I think it's on topics that uh, pretty much everybody in the Middle East is pretty aware of. You know, people yeah. aren't people aren't in the dark in Iran about what's going on with Saudi yeah. Arabia in the way that we are. That's been interesting. I mean, it's like the how little pushback I've gotten on this this topic uh, from folks in the region. I've gotten a lot of attaboys. I've gotten a lot of Saudi commenters, which I which I value very highly. I've had some uh, interesting conversations in the comments, and uh, they dispute what I'm saying to some extent. But uh, I think it's important to emphasize that I'm not against Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia's people. I think that they're just as caught in this this uh, this trap as anybody else is. Yeah. Well, so I've got one new topic, but before we before I get to that, when we, when we were talking about the way that Saudi Arabia, through its worldwide promotion of this this thing called Wahhabism, has managed to kind of stamp out other, or is it was in the process of managing to stamp out other, maybe more vibrant or liberal or interesting strains of Islam, or just less violent, whatever. Anyway, the point is, when I was talking about these other versions, these these parallel to Catholic liberation theology versions of Islam that were current in the 60s and the mid-1970s in Iran. One of the reasons that was the case is that Shia Islam from way back when had these two strains, one of which was called Usuli and the other one I can't remember, which uh, yeah, that's not ideal. But the Usuli uh, my, my, pronunci my pronunciation of things throughout this uh, throughout this project has been pretty appalling. <laughs> yeah, I think probably probably but so the other strain of Shia Islam is what in Christianity is referred to as sola scriptura, a reliance only on the text, right? With not yeah. really any room for interpretation of the text. Okay. Uh, and then Usulism is this idea that learned Islamic scholars will in every generation kind of reinterpret the Quran and the Hadith for every generation in response to changing societal circumstances, right? Which is the reason why in mid-60s Iran, you had... Ayatollah Khomeini on one side espousing this thing, was, which was called jurist guardianship. And the guys that I'm talking about, these liberal theologians, were also Ayatollahs, right? They had just as much religious cachet as Khomeini. Hmm. Um, and the reason that they could position themselves that way is because there was this really cool kind of liberal flowing version of Shia Islam that existed in Iran. And what happened in the course of the Iran-Iraq war is that the Saudis, by helping to fund Saddam Hussein, helped to really solidify what was going on in Iran and stamp out everything else that was going on there, right? Because now it's just Khomeini's version. Yeah, and um, I, th I think that's I think that that's another sort of broad uh, issue. It's just people just don't realize like how terrible war is, which which may sound like a, a ridiculous statement, but sounds banal, but it's so true. It and and it is completely ignored. Uh, there's a lot of people who uh, rightly uh, point to the events in Turkey and what a shame it is uh, the way that Erdogan is is developing and, and taking control. But what almost never gets mentioned in these, these agonized think pieces is the way that it was the Syrian war that gave him the opportunity to do this. 
the, the effects, the long-term effects of these wars on the local populations, you can certainly speak to that in Guatemala and, and everywhere, is, is more extensive than is acknowledged. And the effects of these wars on the broader region is more extensive than is acknowledged. It, it's uh, just the, the insanity of regime change as a, as a policy that's going to do anything for, for stability is, is just uh, something that should be emphasized more. And we certainly see that in Iran. Yeah, and uh, the, uh, this is getting a little bit off topic too, but just just in terms of a, a single small case study of the way that we don't realize the way that we're screwing people over in the Middle East is um, take the Kurds, right? So for anybody who doesn't know, all of the countries in the Middle East 100 years ago, well, oh yeah, it's yeah, it's 17. Yeah, so 100 years ago, it did not exist, right? It's all just provinces of the Ottoman Empire. And at the mm. end of the First World War... It depends on how you define Middle East. I think Iran is typically... Uh, oh, fair, yeah, very true. Very true. Iran, was, Iran was not. Uh, Egypt had a weird sort of quasi... Egypt managed to sort of assert some kind of independence and was actually like a real geopolitical actor in the first half of the 19th century, but then sort of lost it and became kind of a British, uh, British protectorate towards the end of the 19th century. But yes, the rest of the Middle East, Syria, Lebanon... Uh, Saudi Arabia to an extent, most of it was sort of desert. Yemen, Palestine, Israel, that was, yes, that was all controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no problem. No problem at all. But what happens, what happens, the Allies at the end of the First World War is that they carve up the Ottoman Empire and they create a bunch of countries that did not previously exist and that did not have any real sense of themselves as countries. You know, Turkey did. Turks lived in Turkey, even when it was part of the Ottoman Empire. But Syria... Lebanon, Israel, or Palestine, Jordan, Iraq, these were all totally new entities, right? Mm. So during the course of the First World War, there's a people that live in this, I don't know how, how good anybody's Middle Eastern uh, geography is, but there's a three-way corner between the countries of Syria, Iraq, and Turkey, right? Uh, and there's a people called the Turks, I mean, sorry, the Kurds that kind of live in this corner, right? <laughs> That's a pretty, yeah, yeah they're, they're the Kurds, yeah. Yeah, they're the Kurds. Uh, they live in this corner. And during the First World War, the British, who are fighting in this region, tell the tell the Kurds that they're going to get their own state, and it's going to be called Kurdistan, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So during the Second World, well, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, spoiler alert: doesn't happen. During the Second World War, the British, who are again fighting this region, uh, again fighting over the oil fields in Mosul and Erbil and uh, Kirkuk, uh, they again tell the Kurds, who are again their erstwhile allies, that we're going to give you guys your own country, and it's going to be called Kurdistan, right? Mm -hmm. Well. At the end of the Iran-Iraq war, when Saddam then invades Kuwait because he thinks he has the tacit approval of the United States and doesn't, and we fight Iraq, we again ally ourselves with the Kurds and we tell them, hey, at the end of this war, we're going to push on to Baghdad and we're going to give you your own state, right? Yeah, well, guess what? doesn't happen. So <laughs> right now, our partners in the region, in the war, in Syria, guess who they are? It's the Kurds again. Yep. Um, and one of the reasons that Turkey has become, or one of the excuses that Erdogan has for consolidating what is becoming authoritarian or totalitarian power in that country is unrest on the part of the Kurds. Yeah. Well, that, the Kurds, man, they've been our fault for the last hundred years. Like, well, time, it's been the West's fault. That situation, well, not, not in the sense that we created the Kurds or, well, we created their grievances, but that whole situation is our fault from the very yes. beginning. Well, I, uh, I, I'm very leery to go that far. From, from 1918. I think that the Kurds have legitimate aspirations. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to 
argue like, like with Saudi Arabia, I would actually argue that Saudi Arabia is almost completely a creation of the British Empire. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying we created the United idea States. of British nationhood. No, I'm and I'm, denied that at the point that we should have given it to them in 1918, when there was a chance to head all this stuff off at the pass. Well, I think I think what it is is it, it's a it's a conflict between sort of Western aspirations and promises. I mean, we see this in Syria as well, and what the West is actually willing to do for this for this uh, intermittently useful subject people. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that uh, what happened in 1918 was you know Woodrow Wilson made all these promises and had all these ideas. Man, I've been reading more about Woodrow Wilson lately, and I don't like that guy. Anyway, uh, but racist. Uh, very racist. Not well, he's all he's just. If you look at World War One and what it did to the United States internally, I mean that that's some that's some authoritarian stuff there. But that's 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 a digression. That's uh, the um, so you know we had these sort of broad ideas about Kurdish statehood, and then Ataturk, I think more than anybody else, the founder of modern Turkey, uh, sort of crushed that just by establishing some military facts on the ground. I think that the the Kurdish people have legitimate aspirations, and it's a shame because I'm pretty sure that when the current chaos in the region dies down, we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to screw them over again. We're gonna we're gonna abandon them again because the the to me the only sensible arrangement uh, in the Middle East is sort of stepping back and allowing Turkey and Iran to sort of exercise a an, a larger influence in the region and hopefully with Egypt as well if if that country can ever get its get its stuff together. Yeah, but, I, w- I want to be clear but, that maybe the only thing. The only thing worse that we could do than not establishing an independent Kurdistan would be to step in and try to establish an independent Kurdistan. Yes. And carve parts out of Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. That would be that would be that would be crazy. But so so basically if if the Middle East that's going to evolve, which I think already has evolved to some extent, is sort of a Turkish Iranian duopoly or what have you sort of strategic competition or what have you. Uh, both of them have large Kurdish populations and zero interest in, uh, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly, zero interest in inspiring Kurdish statehood. Uh, so I think that sadly the, the aspirations of Kurdistan are going to be, of an independent Kurdistan, are going to be crushed once again. I mean, who knows, maybe perhaps uh, Iraqi Kurdistan can survive in some form, perhaps uh, the 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 Syrian Kurdish regions can survive in some form, but wow, I mean that would take that would take a, a Kurdish Bismarck or, a, or a, uh, to make that happen. And you know, and it would only survive as long as the governments of Iraq and Syria are in a shambles. Yeah. Um. But all right. So I got I got I got two things that I think could be good. And the one is about Iran, but we already did a lot about that recently. So I'm going to come back to that. But right now, I wanted to ask you. What is it that the Saudis are doing for us right now that continues to justify our support for the regime, even though they're fomenting all of the guys that end up blowing themselves up or shooting up nightclubs in the West? Sorry, say again? What is, it they're, what is it that they're doing for us that justifies our support for the Saudis? Ah, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, what the Saudis have managed to do is convince us of something that we were already convinced of, and uh, that is that that Iran is this somehow, in, in the halls of Washington, D.C., everybody who disagrees with us is a Hitler-level threat, and Iran is the, the most viable option there. Yeah. And uh, we, we decided, I think back in 1979, that Iran was an enemy, 
And we've got a large military called sort of the broader military industrial complex. It's a, it's a military academic and think tank and journalistic establishment that is really geared towards having an enemy. And Iran is really the only viable option now and only through a good deal of fantasy and ignorance of basic numbers can they look like a real enemy. But uh, that's, that's the guy that we've decided is an enemy. Sorry, that's the country that we've decided is an enemy. Uh -huh. And Saudi Arabia is very eager to help us in any actions against Iran for some obvious reasons. It's, uh, it's sort of a, it's a fight and we've, uh, we've picked the wrong horse. I think would be my my argument, and that 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 is the value. There's sort of two two ways that Saudi that the Saudis work to justify the the the, the continuing U.S. Saudi relationship. I'd argue there's been no point to it since the end of Cold War. Uh, but they the Saudis would argue, and there are many many paid and unpaid uh, supporters in the U.S. would argue that it's two things: it's uh, fighting Iran, and their support in the fight against radical terrorism, which is the first one, Iran, I would argue, is a fight not worth having. I think that if we just... It's a bad fight. It's a bad fight. Yeah. It's a bad fight. If we, if we just stop invading either Iran or the countries next to it, I think we'd find that they'd be very willing to become a much more normal country. That's yeah, again, a, again, for people who's... Because uh, uh, most of us are Middle Eastern geography is not great. Uh, Iran is sandwiched between Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Yeah. So not only did we invade those two countries, we also destroyed their governments. So now there are these huge burgeoning civil war insurgencies on either side of Iran, right? Not a comfortable place. And I think that's important to emphasize about the U.S.-Iranian relationship. They've really, yes, uh, back in 1979, they took some hostages. That was very embarrassing and a very bad thing. Which and, was also a response to stuff the U.S. was doing during the revolution at the time. Uh, yeah. I'll get to that in a couple more episodes. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the, the actual threat that Iran poses to the United States is essentially nil. Uh, the massive existential threat that the United States both poses and has been exercising since 1979 is massive. You had the Iran-Iraq war through the first 10 years of the Irani, the current Iranian regime. You had, we had a bit of a break in the 90s, and from 2001 on, we have been massively militarily engaged on both of their borders. Uh, you can't understand Iran's actions and supposed belligerence without, without looking at that. Yeah, if Iran was right now occupying both Canada and Mexico, then we'd have somewhat of like the idea of what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's the Iranian thing. Uh, and I think that we've picked the wrong horse there. And uh, I don't think that uh, that's a really valid reason to continue the, the U.S.-Saudi relationship. The other one is uh, infuriating, frankly. And that's the idea that Saudi Arabia is somehow a good partner in the war on terror, which is false. So false. And Rudy Giuliani, one of my least liked uh, political figures, recently went on Fox News. And surprisingly, I think it was Janine Pirro posed the question. OK, so, you know, I believe they were discussing the uh, uh, Trump's executive orders. I've gotten pushback from people on describing it as a Muslim ban, but that's what it was intended to be. And uh, Ms. Pirro uh, asked, well, OK, why? Why isn't Saudi Arabia included? And Giuliani said, well, well, what you have to understand is that in between 2003 and 2005, Al-Qaeda uh, attacked Saudi Arabia and then Saudi Arabia completely changed its policies. And now they're a good, now they're a good, uh, good ally in fighting terror. And that is, there was a change in Saudi policy. Saudi, Saudi's direct support for 
activities against the West and against the Saudi regime did end at that point. But once again, that's that 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 steps of encouraging radicalism. The the final step, the go out and kill people, is no longer supported against the West and Saudi Arabia. But everything else in that hierarchy, the the ideology, the the approach to the world, the approach to the Quran, the approach to Islam, that's all still there, still funded to the tune of billions of dollars a year. And importantly, the activity in North Africa, the activity in Pakistan, the activity in all these regions that adds up to those those horrifying certainly the activity in Iraq and Syria with with the not with the barely hidden encouragement of the United States, all of that is still happening. All of those those attacks that add up to those those figures of there have been four hundred terrorist attacks in the in the past year. Well, ninety nine percent of those attacks come from not just Saudi money, Saudi money, Gulf money, what have you. That's that's still the case. So the idea that Saudi Arabia is a good ally in the war on terror is just makes me a little angry even hear it yeah yeah and uh i can't i can't speak to so much of that because i haven't man if, if my podcast goes on for like another five years i'll finally i'll finally get to the war on terror the unending the unending war of the united states against the world but um something that does strike me especially because of a bunch a series of mid-1970s new york review of books articles i ended up reading for my most recent show about iran is that before the 1970s, the U.S. didn't really sell arms abroad, right? It sold some, but what had happened was that at the end of the Second World War, we had this massive arms industry, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and by the end of Eisenhower's terms, after we're finished fighting in Korea, Eisenhower has seen the development of this military industrial complex, this huge list of beltway companies and agencies that depend on ongoing war for their livelihood, right? He's seen yeah. this grow large enough to warn us in his going away speech. And he's the guy who names it the military industrial complex. Well, so that keeps growing because right after Korea, we get involved in Vietnam. Mm. So in the mid 1970s, Nixon finally decides it's time to draw down our involvement in Vietnam. And he starts mm. the Vietnamization of our forces there. He starts turning things over to the Vietnamese. Well, for the first time since 1946, our domestic arms industry no longer has enough domestic demand to stay afloat, to stay in business. Well, the same thing has been true of NATO countries since the end of Korea. So what ends up happening is all of these Western countries, instead of providing direct subsidies to their arms industries, just start letting those industries sell their weapons abroad. Mm. And so pretty much all of the wars that have happened outside of the United States and the Soviet Union and Europe since 1946 have only been able to happen because we gave them the guns to make that war. Eh, okay, I think that's well, a little... I, that, was, that was maybe a little, maybe a little overstepping. But the point is, Saudi Arabia and Jordan and the United Arab Emirates and Iran and Syria and Iraq and Turkey, none of these people, uh, none of these countries, rather, have domestic arms industries capable of producing, you know, an F-14 Comcat. Like, that just doesn't, no, that's not no. present there. Instead of directly subsidizing our arms industries, what we did is we sold these countries weapons. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, I mean, my quibble is... Saudi Arabia, right now, my impression is buying a whole lot of guns, right? Oh, it's, it's extraordinary. A hundred, I think throughout the, I was looking at these figures earlier this morning, uh, throughout the course of the Obama administration, over a hundred billion dollars worth of arms deals. I'm not sure if that's just the US or if that's the US and Britain. I mean, for those in Europe who 
you know, m might want to uh, think that they're sitting on the moral high ground here. Uh, this is also a tremendous component of British and French approach to the world. They sell a lot of arms. I believe actually Germany does as well. Uh, so this is this is something that happens everywhere. I do kind of want to quibble with the idea that it's the only reason wars are happening. I mean, war, wars have been happening. Uh, no, no, no. It's not the reason wars are happening. It's where those wars are getting their guns. Yes. And I, the, level, the, the, the level of devastation is due to the level of military technology being put in place. Uh, and that technology does not come from these countries. It comes from us and Europe and uh, up until the 1990s, the Soviet Union. That's definitely fair. That is definitely fair. Uh, the other, the, sorry, one more, one more thing on this point. Mm -hmm. So the Soviet Union had a very deliberate strategy that they pursued for almost all of the second half of the 20th century, which was that they flooded the developing world with uh, weapons. This is why every time we're fighting somebody, they have AK-47s and uh, rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs, because the Soviet Union, very with, with great foresight, saw that the United States would probably end up fighting people in every one of those countries, right? So it was a good bet to just flood cheap weapons into them. Mm -hmm. Well, the United States has done the same thing except against ourselves and not intentionally, right? <laughs> when people shoot, when our uh, helicopters and planes get shot down in Afghanistan, it's by Stinger missiles that we gave to the Taliban in the 1980s. Oh, it's extraordinary. Like Iraq is, I think, the most extraordinary and ridiculous example of this. It, it's the massive military machine that we destroyed in the first Gulf War and then the second Gulf War uh, was built with Saudi money. I think that a lot of their 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 the actual material might have been Soviet, but it's only a it's only a jump or two from uh, American gas tanks to Saudi Saudi bank accounts to uh, the Saddam Hussein's military machine. So we we built it, then we had to destroy it. Yeah, and Iraq kind of ping-ponged in terms of whose sphere of influence they uh, belong to. So we were fighting British Crusader tanks and Soviet T-whatevers. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a whole mishmash of uh, everybody we were fighting in Iraq, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think you, you sort of talked about the, the topic of military-industrial complex and the forever war, and that, that, that's something that bothers me deeply. It, I think Eisenhower and his his getting up there and making that speech. I mean, thank God he did. It provides an incredible window to, uh, I mean, he was a Republican. He was a war hero. I mean, this is not a, this is not some namby-pamby uh, kumbaya internationalist. I mean, he, he, he saw the, the worth of military power, but felt compelled to lay out this extraordinary warning. Uh, if, if anybody listening hasn't seen Eisenhower on the military industrial complex, I suggest you look at it. But uh, what I've argued in a video, what is the military industrial complex, is that people don't realize that his critique is from 60 years ago. And uh, 60 years ago, there were people who remembered what, what the U.S. without a military industrial complex was like and what, what it was like for the United States to be at peace. And uh, those people are all dead now. It's, it's been internalized. This is supposedly what the U.S. does. And for everyone working in Washington, D.C., this is... Uh, a, a powerful militarily interventionist United States is the only thing that they can see, whether it's for ideas of preemption or sort of neocon ideas or ideas that I would argue are exactly as damaging, the, the duty to protect types, the sort of uh, liberal interventionists, uh, for lack of a better term. And it, it's just that everybody on both sides of the left-wing, right-wing marketing segmentation in Washington, D.C., are all for war. And uh, it's actually gotten worse since 2001. I mean, now nobody even disputes it anymore. Uh, when we went into Iraq, there were hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of uh, most Western capitals uh, and in the United States as well. 
And that, that movement has just sort of disappeared because I think we've accepted over 15 years. That's not the full career of a person working in journalism or government, but, but it's, it's, a, it's half to a third of one. We've just sort of accepted that permanent forever war is what we're going to do. And that's, uh, that's deeply troubling. Yeah, and so I I, I kind of had my own cute little answer as to what what exactly Saudi Arabia does for us now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let let me get through this and then see how much you agree with because I'm definitely I'm kind of more on the deep end than you, in the mm-hmm. deep off the whatever you know whatever the phrase would be. So there's this there's this very interesting dynamic. I studied Cuba when I was in school, and there's this super interesting dynamic that happens from 1960 at the dawn of the revolution to right now. And what it is, is that at the very outset, Fidel is not particularly communist. He doesn't really want to buddy up to the Soviet Union. He's not really interested in any of that stuff. All of that only starts when the United States makes him an international pariah and tries to invade the country in the Bay of Pigs. And mm-hmm. over the course of the second half of the 20th century, the Miami lobby in the United States, the lobby that basically controlled our policy towards Cuba, made mm-hmm. sure that at every turn we were doing the most harsh sanctions, you know, Whatever we could do to isolate that country internationally, we were doing it. So what that did in Cuba was it made Fidel more powerful because he could point to the United States and say, look, we, this tiny little island country, we're fighting the biggest power on the face of the earth. And he'd condemn the United States in a speech uh, on the floor of the United Nations. And then that Miami lobby would go to Congress and say, look at this speech Fidel is making. He's he's trying to bring down the United States with communism. So both sets of extremists ended up making each other more powerful, even though they were ostensibly opposed to each other. So what does Saudi Arabia do for us? What is this country that funnels billions of dollars into terrorist movements indirectly or directly? Not directly anymore, as Rob has pointed out. What does that do for us? Uh, for us as a country, it's not doing anything. It's going to end up leading to more uh, attacks, right? Or at least poisoning the conversation about worldwide Islam. Mm-hmm. But what does Saudi Arabia do for, well, from my perspective, the Republican establishment, but what is really more the kind of professional foreign policy establishment, the ones that, as Rob said, are interested in humanitarian interventions or about pursuing this forever war against Islam? Well, mm-hmm. having a country that nobody knows anything about that's the actual source of radical Islam and terrorism uh, that we never have to get rid of because we never acknowledge it. Well, that mm-hmm. makes people who are in power, the people who are controlling the military industrial complex, it means that we'll keep buying those weapons. It means that we'll keep deploying our soldiers abroad. And it means that the people who are willing to use hate and Islamophobia mm-hmm. uh, to gain power in the United States, is going to make them more powerful. And they, in turn, are going to attack countries in the Middle East, which will make the Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia more ideologically powerful. It's these two groups yeah. of extremists who are supporting each other. Absolutely. I, I think I think that's, um, yes, I, I, I agree with that completely. I think that is a benefit that Saudi Arabia provides, is, is by keeping this one last region destabilized enough that there's a there's something for the U.S. military to do. That's, that, that is indisputable. The, uh, I think that, that's a point I've made in a couple videos, is that the reason the Middle East is screwed up is not because of thousand-year-old tensions and immortal hatreds, yada, yada. No, it's because the Cold War never ended there. Uh, it's because uh, the superpower rivalry that disappeared everywhere else in the Middle East was replaced with a one superpower number of smaller powers rivalry that keeps things destabilized. Yeah, and that, I think that is absolutely something that Saudi Arabia provides to the United States. However, I would, I don't think it's conscious. I think that's the, my, the one qualification of your statement there. I don't think 
I don't think there's some sinister plot afoot here. I think it's just, I think that's just the way that things have worked out. And I think it, there's certainly no interest in questioning that. And I think that's why people don't discuss Saudi Arabia is because if we started discussing it in a large way, it would become very clear that they are the main destabilizing element in the Middle East. That's one of the, the larger, and I don't, I don't think you were making the case that it was some sinister conspiracy, were you? Or No, I think, I think conspiracies are for people who have checked out of uh, the difficult uh, truths of actual reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, because that's, that's, and that's the thing that's so, um, so frustrating is like, I've spent a lot of time in Washington, DC. I have good friends who work in Washington, DC, in the state department, number of, number of places. And it's just, there's absolutely no analysis of this stuff beyond the surface level, uh, even from people working in the intelligence communities. So it's okay. These are the bad guys. These are the good guys. The Saudis, they're our allies. Okay. Moving forward. It, it's just because there's no, there's no interest there. There's no incentive for the people working in these systems to actually solve the problems. They've got a certain set of approaches to the world and approaches to problems that they're interested in pushing forward. Actually ending the problem would be the end of job security. So it's not that they consciously avoid looking at Saudi Arabia. It's just that there's no interest. There's no reason to look at it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the closest it would get to conspiracy is you'd have these people in all these think tanks and all these government positions whose livelihood basically depends on an ongoing conflict with radical Islamic fundamentalism or whatever it is. And, and, and when they finally, you know, get a little bit of perspective and their consciousness almost rises to that level where it's like, oh, man, maybe Saudi Arabia is the problem. Maybe, maybe we've been doing this wrong. It just, you know, you kind of elide that. Because that would be to bring down the entire establishment that you're a part of, right? It's that it's that in, uh, Upton Sinclair quote. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Yes, exactly. That's a fantastic. Can you say that again? I think that's that's. Uh, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Yeah, Upton, yes. Upton Sinclair. Yeah, absolutely. And that that that's uh, that's something that I saw in Istanbul, and not not just in uh, intelligence circles, but in in the just the broader humanitarian industry. It's, you know, Assad is a bad man. That's all that we really need to know here. You know, and that, that's, uh, it's very hard to see something that will hurt your livelihood and that will hurt the, the interests of the organization for which you work. It's not a sinister conspiracy. It's, it's just, uh, just the way things are. You mentioned think tanks, and I think it's, yeah, the think tanks in the U.S. are really sort of pay-for-play organizations. And uh, Gulf countries have a lot of money. And they're willing to fund a lot of research. And uh, they're going to be a lot less willing to fund research if uh, your institution, be it, be it the Brookings Institution and, and the left-wing marketing segmentation or the Hoover Institution and the right-wing marketing segmentation. They're going to be a lot interested, less interested in giving you money to fund studies if you start talking honestly about the influence of uh, Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries in the region. So it just doesn't happen. Yeah, so I mean... Yeah. When you talk about the military-industrial complex, two two things to realize about that are, one, it's bipartisan, and two, it includes think tanks. So Brookings and Hoover and all these other places would not be able to sustain as many fellows as they have talking about the Middle East or talking about international relations unless somebody was funding that. Mm -hmm. And that somebody might happen to be Saudi Arabia. Yep. yep. Which I guarantee you, Brookings has guys that are way smarter than me and oh, not, yeah. to, not to insult you, Rob, but way smarter than you. Uh, yeah. And there's a very good reason that those people aren't talking about Saudi Arabia. 
it, it's it's incredible. There was this. I read a book, kind of as a hate read, uh, by this guy named Charles Lister, and uh, it was something about the uh, Syrian jihad or something like that. And it was an extraordinarily, I mean, the granular, in-depth knowledge that this guy had of the Syrian conflict and and whatnot was extraordinary. But there was also this this equally extraordinary need to avoid certain subjects and certain topics. Uh, he was very interested in portraying certain elements of the Islamic Jihad in Syria, the parts that the U.S. government is interested in bombing. And it's a very useful book for tracing the the origins and, and whatnot of uh, ISIS and the jihadists formerly known as al-Nusra, uh, the, the al-Qaeda-linked elements. So though he's great on the bits that we want to bomb, but he, he just, he steps back to these platitudes and these very quick, broad strokes discussions of things that we're not interested in looking at. You know, the idea is that, well, according to Lister and according to a lot of, basically according to the U.S. government, well, the the jihadist influence in Syria started when Assad led a whole bunch of jihadists out of the prisons, uh, which is absolutely ridiculous and requires a complete ignoring of what politics were like, what the very deep roots of sort of a Sunni, a rigorously fundamentalist Sunni outlook were in Syria at the time. But, you know, they, they just go over that. So, so and yeah, brilliant people, much smarter than either of us, who are completely limited in their ability to actually look at, argue, and right. extended journalism. Um, are you familiar with, um, I think it's Ayan Hirsi Ali? I am not. I'm not. I'm pretty sure I massacred that. She's a real darling on the right wing because she's a woman who's had a tremendously bruising experience. Broad strokes. I don't know this as well as I should. She uh, was, uh, I believe, uh, an immigrant or refugee from Somalia where she had a really bruising, um, uh, fundamental, a very bruising uh, upbringing that uh, was directly related to Islam. Then she became, I believe, a politician in the Netherlands and uh, essentially had to leave the Netherlands uh, for her safety uh, because she took a very strongly anti-Islam uh, yeah. line. And now she, I mean, she'll, she's been on Bill Maher. She uh, works for the Hoover Institution, which is uh, sort of a uh, one one of the uh, uh, a very impressive institution, I think, linked to Stanford that's very much... Uh, uh, military-industrial complex uh, outfit. Um, and it's interesting because I saw a talk with her recently, and when somebody brought it up, she was very eager to talk about the Saudi influence and, and how it was so very important in the expansion of uh, this uh, uh, sort of Islam, this uh, unfortunate Islamic ideology. But then I read a long profile of her in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, it talked about how she's I really want to delve back into her work because I dismissed it about 10, 15 years ago when she was very strongly anti-Islamic in every sense. And it was why she's such a darling of Islamophobes everywhere. But my understanding is that she's mellowed significantly and, and uh, has, I think, is probably exerting a more interesting influence on the idea. So I want to look into it more. But this article was fascinating because what came across in her talks in the interview wasn't there. I have, I have a pretty quick way of discussion of radical Islamism at this point. Uh, before I get more than a few paragraphs in, I'll do a control F. I'll do a search on the document. And if it doesn't mention Saudi Arabia, then it's not worth paying attention to. And that article did not mention Saudi Arabia. And I, I got to wonder if the writer of this profile initially did include a paragraph or two on Saudi Arabia and it didn't make its way past the editor or the publisher. 
So it's not just the think tanks. I think it's journalism as well which likes simple narratives. I mean, it wants to describe what's going on and then it'll plug it into a narrative it likes. Like radical Islam is this crazy amorphous thing that we couldn't possibly see where it came from or Assad is a very bad man and that's all you need to know about the war in Syria. Yeah. And so I, I think we're probably, I don't know about Rob, but I think we're probably going to start thinking about wrapping up. But before we do that, I want to point something out, which is that... Uh, and and Robert, tell me if I'm I'm misrepresenting you, but you're you're conservative, uh, principled conservative, not any any way uh, related to or in favor of the Republican Party of the United States. Not at this uh, point. I live, I live in hope that it'll turn into something that returns to uh, worthwhile principles, but uh, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, definitely, definitely not today. Yeah. And I'm extremely liberal and not in like a like a Democrat sense, but like like a mid 20th century, like socialist kind of liberal. Right. But you're, you're a commie, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But a Catholic commie. Yeah. A very particular kind of. You're the, you're the guy holding the torch for liberation theology. You're, you're, exactly. you're, that's me. That's fantastic. Um, but what's important is that uh, this particular narrative that Robert is fighting against, right, this narrative where the Middle East is anybody's fault but Saudi Arabia, and that Islam is bad, and we're not looking at any of the nuances in that question or that mm -hmm. statement, and the narrative that I'm fighting against, which is that the United States has always been an unmitigated force for good uh, in the world when that's pretty clearly untrue. Both of those narratives are bipartisan. Both the Republican mm -hmm. Party and the Re Democratic Party in the United States, both mainstream liberals and mainstream conservatives buy into those two narratives, right? Absolutely. We're not, we're not trying to push any political agenda except the truth, man, because nobody yeah. knows it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's extraordinarily frustrating just how nobody wants to look at this. And that's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do with this Everybody's Lying About Islam essay. And I would suggest that people look into it. People uh, give it give it a try. It's available on the Amazon Kindle and now available in paperback form as well. I, I am seeing there's a great, I mean, a crazy discussion going on in in the comments. But there are a few direct questions. Uh, if anybody else in the comments has a direct question they'd like to pose, we'll address them right now. We've got Genghis Khan. We've got uh, we've got we've got so much going on here. Um, the uh, I think uh, was it Laxey Stu was pointing out that Western countries would sell arms to Saudi Arabia and not Iran, presumably because of a kind of strategic alignment with Saudi Arabia. I think that's absolutely true. I think we discussed that. I think that that's uh, I think that is what it is, and I think it's uh, I think it's a mistake. I think we're backing the wrong horse. I think that Iran is a very very interesting place with uh, a lot going on. I think Saudi Arabia is sadly a country that has been put in an awkward position by its own leadership and its own its own ideologies. Uh, it's going to have a lot of trouble getting along in sort of a post post oil economy. And it's the wrong horse, both from a moral perspective and from an ideological perspective, but also from a very rational perspective. We could easily spend decades in Yemen, in Iraq, and Syria backing up Saudi Arabia against Iran, and Saudi Arabia will just keep getting weaker, and we'll just keep being more distracted. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not a supporter as the idea of the, the threat from China or something like that, but I do believe that 20, 30 years from now, we're going to want to think a little more deeply about uh, how we appropriately balance uh, China's, China's rise. And if we're still in the dust in the Middle East supporting Saudi Arabia, that would just be a, that'd be very unfortunate. Looking through, uh, there was a, one direct question was, how would you both vote in the UK election upcoming? 
I believe, uh, Ter uh, sorry, I've, I've been, it's Teresa May, I've mispronounced, I can't even mispronounce uh, English names, but I believe it's Teresa May uh, has called a snap election in the United Kingdom, and uh, how, would, how would you vote, John? Well, how embarrassing that I have no idea. I didn't even know she'd call elections. I'm, yep, uh, yep. Hold on, I'll look yep. this up. Who are we looking at? I think the expectation is that she's going to win win big uh, because the Labor Party, I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume that you'd probably be a, a Labor Party voter. Yeah, it's, it's Jeremy Corbyn, right? It's like the yeah. uh, like the bicycle riding hippie. That's the, yeah, uh, yeah that's I'd the, be a Corbyn guy for sure. Yeah, that's your, that's your, uh, I would be, uh, my understanding, and I could be wrong here, I'm not as up on this as I should be, is that the, the Lib Dem party, uh, a, a sort of perpetual also ran, maybe it was powerful 100 years ago or what have you, and was uh, in a coalition government, I believe, with Cameron initially, but then got booted out. Uh, I believe the Lim, Lib Dem party is making a big push to, I think, as a, to explicitly pro-EU uh, in this election. And yeah, I'm Lib Dem all the way. I definitely, you know, if Brexit is going to happen, I want it to be soft and I want it to be easy. And I want, I think it's important for the uh, the survival of the European Union that, that Brexit be handled as, as pleasantly and uh, easily as possible. But uh, if there's any way to keep it from happening at all, which I think is what a Lib Dem victory would lead to, then yes, I, I would support Lib Dems. So that would be, they, <laughs> Lord Val the First says, Lib Dems are a joke. They give away their principles and implement nothing in coalitions. They have collapsed in the polls. But hey, if they're pro-Brexit, if they're anti-Brexit, they're my guys. But once again, that comes from an outsider's perspective. Uh, I, I have never voted, nor will I ever vote at a UK election. So uh, Yeah, and I want to say, I don't know anything about UK politics, really. Uh, <laughs> the, the, other, uh, the other thing that's good to point out is that I, I, Rob and I haven't talked like, extensively about our own personal politics, but I think we both occupy a position that's uh, not represented by any party, really, in almost any country, which is that we're pro-international institutions without being pro any kind of war, right? Not pro-intervention, not pro-getting involved in stuff, but yeah. yes, pro-UN and EU and... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting because I think we both would identify with pretty reviled figures. I think that you 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 like Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, are you are you a Sanders guy or? Yeah, I like Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and I'm 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 uh, though with with great qualifications. Uh, I am uh, to an extent a Rand Paul guy. Yeah, all I, the good stuff he says is not any of the bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like it, he's <laughs> well, he's the only U.S. politician, right or left, that's gonna that talk seriously about U.S. intervention abroad, as far as I can see. It. I think he, in some cases, he's better than Sanders on that. Yeah, it's incredible. You have to go as far as Rand Paul to find somebody who says, "Hey, let's not kill people abroad." Yeah, 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 and it's uh, it's uh, and he's also very good on criminal justice in the U.S. So yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not. As I'm sure you wouldn't be a, a full-throated supporter of everything Sanders says, I'm not a full-throated supporter of everything Rand Paul says, but those are, our guys are very much on the fringes and, and mocked and mocked, mocked and hated for it. Oh, Prophet111 says, I just joined Patreon. Well, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm currently running a bit of a, uh, a fundraiser. Uh, I have been doing this for three years and I have exhausted my savings and the, the patience of my friends and family. So I'm asking people to sign up for my Patreon crowdfunding page, which is a uh, sort of an ongoing Kickstarter that allows people to chip in a buck or two for each video that I produce. Uh, only some of the videos. I won't be charging for this one because it's very easy to, was very easy to produce, but I typically put 15 to 20 hours into each of my videos, uh, the more produced ones. And 
don't get uh, a lot of reward for that. So with Patreon, I'm hoping to get people to chip in and support. And Prophet111 has apparently just joined, and I'm uh, very grateful to him for that, uh, him or her uh, for that. By the way, I, something I haven't said uh, one time in this, which is how you know I'm bad at promoting my own site. My podcast is called Safer Democracy, and you can find it at saferdemocracy.com. Yeah, so all the guys who are listening who love Rob, yeah, check it out. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. I would recommend that highly. I've made it through a couple episodes at this point, and they're all pretty fantastic. Well, I'm sure that were John and I to discuss U.S. domestic politics, we'd probably get into a knife fight uh, on foreign policy. I, I've yet to see something that we disagree on. Um, so I, uh, I would highly recommend checking out uh, the Safe for Democracy podcast. It's very, very well done. And just, just to the to the point of sort of Patreon and independent media more more generally, I believe it is vital at this point that people like John and I can make a living doing this. Uh, it's because the, the, the sort of general discussion and general official discussion in journalism, academia, think tanks, certainly politics, is just so lacking on, on basic facts. Uh, a lot of people much smarter than us who, you know, might have gone to better schools or, or, or uh, know more about the granular details are just pushing forward ideologies and, and approaches that make no sense. And I think it's very important that people from the the, the left like John and, and the, I don't know, globalist right like myself <laughs> um, are, are, are able to make a living and eat. And I think the official term is cucks now. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Cucks, yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, uh, John just wants to turn everything into Venezuela, is, uh, is, is what it is. Oh, 60s Cuba. Let's not go too far. Not, not every, not in the same way that not every right winger is on your side. Not every, not every crazy ass socialist is really barking up the right tree. Um, before were you were you about to wrap up or did you well was that, i was i was going to ask you if you can tell how long we've been on air because it's like an hour and a half or more right there is so much about uh today that i was not fully prepared for and i did not even think to start a timer so no i i know that we're somewhere between an hour and a half two hours yeah so my my feeling as far as a wrap-up question was somebody asked but somebody somebody asked a little while ago what would be our ideal resolution to the syrian conflict yeah, so that's exactly i, what I, I think that's but so so I think I think that's a good question. Uh, I think it's a little bit well. It's outside of my wheelhouse. I, I I you've done a ton of stuff on Syria. I have not. I know that I know that when I was in my last year of college, I dated a Lebanese girl, and we talked pseudo seriously about trying to set up an American brigade the way that the Abraham Lincoln Brigade went to fight in the <laughs> Spanish Civil War. Yeah. Um, but I think I think what a good question to wrap oh, up there, would be is there are people doing that by the way uh piss pig granddad on twitter who i think <laughs> is a very very doctrinaire awesome. uh marxist uh yeah. has been fighting with the kurds and tweeting about it it's uh it's it's a very interesting thing and he's just yeah. uh just some guy from i don't know the midwest or somewhere and he's like yeah and he he uh uh takes a very interesting approach to it. Um, I don't know if he's still there, but I remember. So yeah, I mean, people are doing that, that sort of Lincoln Brigade approach. Yeah. But so I, I think I think a good question, just because I couldn't speak well enough to what's going on in Syria, would be, so how do you want to solve the Saudi Arabian problem? What should we do? Not not in terms of like, what can we do necessarily, but like, what should we do? Uh, the So I have identified this problem, and I think actually it's a problem that to a degree is solving itself. I think what's in, there isn't direct action required. I don't even think we need to change our formally 
positive, um, you know, approach to Saudi Arabia. Sure, you know, they're an ally, let them keep being an ally. What we do need to do is stop doing a number of things. We need to stop supporting their, their interaction in Yemen. That would be the first thing. The, the conflict in Yemen is pretty horrific. It's another example of a sort of fake fight against Iranian influence. We're now building Iranian influence in Yemen. The Houthis, who are a different flavor of Shia, from the Iranian regime have been fighting against Saudi Arabia, or rather the Houthis started doing very well, and then Saudi Arabia intervened a couple of years back and is in the process of just destroying the country. Thousands of people dead, I think millions of people in danger of starvation now this year because of the destruction of the country brought by the Saudis. And supposedly, this was to tamp down on the Houthi-Iranian connection, which didn't really exist before the Saudis started bombing. Yeah. And they, again, nobody in the United States knows this is going on, but the people in Yemen are very much aware where those planes and tanks and bombs and bullets came from, right? They absolutely. know the Saudis are shooting them, and they know that we gave them to them. Exactly. And it's not just uh, the fact that we've sold them all these weapons. There's also very deep intelligence support. Pretty sure I have a lot of followers, and I, I too am, am impressed by Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis. He's at, least, he's at least an adult, which is more than can be said for most of the Trump administration. But he has a tremendous mat on for, uh, for Iran. He, he really does not like Iran for some for some understandable reasons, but he I think is is a big supporter of more involvement in Yemen on the Saudi side. Uh, there was famously there was a, a special forces attack that didn't go so well. It seems like the Trump administration wants to step up our involvement in Yemen, which is just insane. I think that should stop now. I think we should stop selling so many arms to Saudi Arabia. That's pretty much an impossible thing to ask for. Most importantly, I think it's just that we start looking at these issues more honestly. Uh, we have the power to shut down this funding, this, this, this worldwide funding from Saudis to organizations, but we don't. Uh, we absolutely do not because we think those organizations can be useful against uh, Iran. So even in Iraq and Syria, we have these uh, even while the insurgency in Iraq was going on and killing U.S. soldiers, we weren't shutting down the, the funding pipeline because we thought that those Sunni elements could be useful against Iranian elements uh, in Iraq. So there, there are so many basic things that we can do to, to make the U.S.-Saudi relationship less damaging without even changing our appropriate, uh, our, our, our form, formally, not formally, but formal positive approach to Saudi Arabia doesn't need to change. We just need to actually do a lot of the things that we've said we were doing, like acting more seriously to shut down uh, funding for jihadist groups worldwide. And actually, this gets back to the Syria question. At this point, what we should do in Syria is just stop, stop funding all of these elements that have failed completely to make any headway against Assad and are just turning it into a perpetual meat grinder. I think the most important thing in Syria right now is to get a ceasefire. That's, uh, that's what we need, because when the violence stops, then people can actually start the process of rebuilding the country to some degree. It was very interesting during a ceasefire, I think it was, was it last year at this point or just earlier this year, very quickly, sort of uh, the jihadists formerly known as al-Nusra, uh, al-Qaeda, uh, started dealing with uh, popular protests against their control of certain areas. Uh, the, everybody, every negative influence in Syria, from Assad to al-Nusra to ISIS, needs the war to keep going, to continue to, to legitimize themselves. So I'd say the first step would be a ceasefire. I think 
then to get, I think, the best case for, for Syria is then to get a sort of Yugoslavia-type settlement. Uh, I think uh, some kind of federalist patchwork in the hopes that perhaps it would get back together at some point. But the most important thing in Syria is to just sort of stop the killing, which you would think would be a, a straightforward uh, approach to the issue, but that has never been the U.S. approach. There was a, a second serious attempt at a ceasefire. Was it last fall or just earlier this year? That ended, uh, that, that ended because the, the story was it ended because of a bombing that Assad did. But if you were actually paying attention to the news cycle, you'd have noticed that it ended when U.S. warplanes killed 80 to 100 Syrian soldiers, of, of Assad soldiers. So it was portrayed as, oh, Assad went and killed another uh, ceasefire. But no, it was the U.S. government killed a whole bunch of his so soldiers. How's he supposed to support a ceasefire when that happens? So yeah, I think some legitimate diplomatic efforts are the next step in Syria. Some legitimate attempts at a ceasefire. The, I think there's now been, well, there was a little bit of walking back on the Assad has got to go approach. But for, for most of the, the length of this conflict, the United States has not allowed any serious negotiation process to start in Syria that, that allows Assad to still be there. And that, that's, that's ridiculous. That, that sort of like, come to the peace table. It'll end up with you exiled and in jail. I, would, I wouldn't go for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, Syria's tough, man. Because uh, Assad's a monster. Assad's like a real monster, like a, a seldom seen human monster, right? And 200,000 people are dead. But at some point, I would like, what about Suharto? What about uh, Indonesia? What about Saddam Hussein, who was completely supported uh, by the U.S. government during the Iran-Iraq war? I mean, I mean, like in statistical terms, seldom seen. Uh, if you're looking at where the United States gets involved with people, yeah, pretty much ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, like... It is what it is now, right? We can't we can't go back six years and try to do something else. The only thing that we can do to improve what's going on is try to stop the fighting, whether or not Assad stays in power, right? And the answer is he's going to stay in power. And what we have to realize, especially liberals in kind of the Clinton interventionist vein, is like, yeah, he's bad, man, but it's not about our the way we feel about the conflict, right? Like, we're, we desperately want him to go because he's evil, okay? But yeah, he's evil, it's true. But our good feeling is not worth the lives of another two hundred thousand Syrians. Yeah. You just you got to suck it up and start to and and make peace in a way that actually makes peace, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, my 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 short thing on on Saudi Arabia is the same as you, right? We just we just got to stop. We got to stop involving ourselves in the region the way in the way we have. But one mm -hmm. thing that I talk a lot about in my podcast is the way that uh, morality totally can be applied to international relations, uh, mm -hmm. and I think what we do abroad has moral weight and moral consequences. So if you're, if you're trying to come up with like four reasons to stop what we're doing in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, two of them are moral. Uh, yeah. The regime itself is bad on its yeah. face, right? It's bad for its people. It's not promoting anything that we'd like to be a part of. And then two, yeah. uh, it's bad for world Islam. It's poisoning, it's poisoning a religion that has a billion and a half people in it. Well, upwards yeah. of a billion and a half people in it. But if you wanted to do this the real politique way, right? The, the realist yeah. way, it's that it's bad for the United States. They're funding all these people that end up attacking us. Yeah. And the, maybe the most cynical of all 
Mm-hmm. We get out of Saudi Arabia because every time we've supported a monarch against its own people, the eventual regime, when that monarchy inevitably collapses, ends mm-hmm. up becoming an enemy of the United States. Why does Iran hate us? Well, because we funded and supported a brutal monarch who mm-hmm. uh, destroyed the Iranian people for you know 30 years. If we don't get out of Saudi Arabia now for good moral reasons, we should get out because it's going to bite us in the ass. And also just they're not they're not they're the wrong horse. Uh, especially in what I believe is a, it's not a post-petroleum uh, world, but in, in, a, in a world where petroleum demand peaks and, and, and slides, which I think is quite possible. I mean, Saudi Arabia, it's all, it's since the end of the Cold War, Saudi Arabia has been more of a hindrance than, uh, than a help, and that's about to accelerate. Um, I, have, I, have, I have a comment here. The, uh, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this guy anonymous. But uh, we've got, uh, I've got a problem with your live stream podcast, buddy. Uh, I think his comments about uh, evangelical Christians were smug, condescending, and sophomoric. Um, and then the, he provides an article that I don't think we can delve into here. Uh, would you like to re- respond to that? I think, I, think he's, I think he's at least half right in the <laughs> sense that I, I'm pretty glib about American evangelicals. And that's why I like having conversations with guys like Rob, who will dial me back and read comments to that effect. But the other thing is that evangelicals in the United States, certain strains of evangelicals, because in the same way that you can't say Christianity, you can't say evangelicals, right, in the U.S. Yeah. There's um, a, many different approaches. But and if I, you want to look for the people who and that, are... And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that there are elements of evangelical Christianity that are very concerned with the Palestinians, you know, so the, and, uh, and uh, interested in actually... Uh, bringing about a resolution. I, I think I, I, I think it is I think it is something that I don't think I did challenge you when you said that initially. And while I, I think there are, and I, I thank that uh, commenter for bringing it up, I, I think that while you're absolutely right, there are elements, and I think you were already correcting this yourself, there are elements of evangelical Christianity that, that uh, believe they're bringing about the apocalypse. Uh, I think that's a, uh, by supporting Israel, I think that's a much smaller segment of a given group than perhaps we initially presented. I think that's uh, probably true. I think that's probably true. I uh, So I got a bunch of stuff in front of my hands and I can't uh, type things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if if that particular comment, commenter would like, I could I could go dig up statistics. It's, uh, it's not a majority group, maybe, within mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity in the United States, but I think it is indisputable that the fundamentalist, elements of American Christianity that, that Ronald Reagan brought into the Big Tent of the Republican mm-hmm. Party in the 1980s have contributed substantively to the death of truthful and productive discourse within the Republican Party and to certain elements of, I don't know, a bunch of, st- a, a bunch of stuff that may not have affected our national political discourse in a positive way since the 1980s and that have indirectly and directly led to the election of Donald Trump and the uh, and the main current of our discussion about the Middle East being Islamophobic, I think I they think have contributed. I think that's. Uh, I think that's. I think that's fair to a degree. But I, the the thing about sort of the evangelical influence in Christianity in Republican politics and whatnot that was initially that was definitely one of the main motivating reasons. Even when I considered myself very conservative or more, I still consider myself very conservative, but even when I considered myself a more doctrinaire 
conservative. That was a reason, one of the reasons I would never call myself a Republican, because I, I, I found that that evangelical influence was uh, troubling and not something I was willing to sign up for. I mean, I was always the, the fiscally conservative, not so much into Jesus uh, type of conservative. But uh, what's interesting about the evangelical influence now is just how thoroughly it's, it's sort of clowned itself. The idea that you'd have Donald Trump I mean, I'd think that Jerry, if Jerry Falwell had any uh, any actual principles, he'd be he'd be spinning in his grave to to hear that you know Donald Trump was giving commencement speeches at Liberty University. You know that the the um, I think that the the sort of Christian coalition's influence on modern Republicanism is uh, pretty dead. If you've got Donald Trump in the White House and leading your party, despite you know I mean. God, uh, I haven't gone through any of the clips recently, but yeah, Trump holding up a Bible. I'm like, yeah, I like this. This is awesome. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, when when I when I get pretty incensed about maybe the Christian right or the uh, Republican establishment version of e- evangelical Christianity, it's not an anti-religious thing, right? Like I said, I'm I'm like a liberation theology Catholic, so I'm pretty invested in the idea of religion as a thing with with power to say positive stuff and to make positive change in the world. And the thing that really bothers me about maybe American evangelicals or, well, I mean, you could say that because statistically it's true, is they voted for Trump, right? They voted mm-hmm. for Donald Trump. They voted against what they purport to be. There's no, there's, there is, there are zero interpretations of the Christian religion to which Donald Trump conforms. Yeah. There's, there's none. And statistically they went for Trump. So. Maybe I'd be. I think, I think the response, that is the truth. I think the response there would be not something that I would believe in, but I think that the response would be that, well, he was better than Hillary Clinton or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. Well, yeah. Yeah, we kind of got in the weeds there. Uh, your commenter is right, though. I was, I was being glib. All right. I think, unless I've got, I don't think I've got anything. So that was, I don't think I've got anything else on the. Uh, uh, quick on the live chat, anybody there? You got any last second questions? Chime in now. Something I did see was, uh, I can't find any of this stuff uh, after I want to find it, right? Yeah. Um, but somebody asked, are you going to do an, oh yeah, when will you do another one of these? Happy to do it. It's not, not hard to do. I definitely want to incorporate more uh, live programming. If John is interested, uh, I'll uh, do more conversations with him. And if... And uh, I'll do more conversations with other people. I've already got some in, in the planning stages. Uh, so, yeah, that's a priority. Yeah. And we, we me, me and Rob had already talked about, he's got his own podcast, which he can talk about in a second, that we had discussed doing together. And then um, I'd also, I've also been playing around with the idea of, with my own podcast, of having a guest listen to the show and then doing kind of a discussion episode about the episode because they'll have questions that would come up for an average or, you know, for a listener. And especially now that I'm doing Iran, Rob would be a perfect interlocutor for that kind of thing because he knows so much about the other stuff that was going on in the Middle East at the time. Well, thank you. That's very kind to say. I got yeah. The the response approach is is great for my everybody's lying about Islam series, which uh, I hope you all have watched. I sat down with the folks I was crashing with at the time, uh, Travis and Ray, and just sort of teased out. That's a very good episode. Yeah, and I think that was very. Uh, you know, I sort of thought it was just sort of a throwaway thing, but I think it's uh, been very useful. I think that uh, it allowed me to make my points better and address questions. Uh, so yeah, it's a great format. We should definitely do more of that. I think this conversation has been great. Uh, have you got any uh, final uh, final words? No, just that I uh, I hope we can do this again. 
Uh, I hope that everybody who's listening to this or who ends up listening to it can check out my podcast because uh, I think it'll be the start of many a good conversation with me, Rob and I, and hopefully many a good conversation on uh, slash r slash more freedom foundation. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And uh, you got to give them the website, John. Safefordemocracy.com. Safefordemocracy.com. Uh, eventually, I'll get in. Uh, I'll get on top of my own self-promotion. Yeah, it's been a long process for me, and I'm clearly not quite there yet. Uh, I'm uh, Rob Morris. I produce videos every Tuesday at the Mo Freedom Foundation on YouTube, and sometimes much more. My website is www.morefreedomfoundation.com. For most of this podcast, we've been discussing a new essay I've published, available on Amazon in ebook and paperback form called Everybody's Lying About Islam. I'd suggest you check it out. Also, I'm currently on a push uh, on Patreon, which is sort of a crowdfunding thing. You can find links on my YouTube channel and on my website. The problem is I've been doing this for about three years and I'm living on people's couches. Uh, so I'd like to get my funding for each video up to $250 a video. This would put me at about US minimum wage and would allow me to keep producing independent media content like this. I've been tremendously grateful at the for the support that I've gotten in the past 48 hours since I started this, but there's still a long way to go. 59 days from now, if I haven't hit that goal, I'm probably going to have to start looking at other opportunities, but it's going really well so far. We've made it a third of the way there in the first, in the first 48 hours. So I'd be delighted for more support. And thank you so much for participating in this to the commenters. Uh, and thank you, John. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Right, I think we'll end it there. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.